Amen. Lord, we thank you for the cross of Calvary. And and Lord, I know that it can grow common if we're not careful. Lord, may we never take it lightly. May we never take it for granted. The greatest act of love in the history of all mankind, that Almighty God would suffer and die in our place. Lord, that you paid the price that we could not pay. And Lord, I just thank you and praise you, Lord, that you love us beyond our comprehension. You know us best and you love us most. That's incredible. Lord, I just ask as we go to your word right now that, Lord, you continue to minister to our hearts. Draw us nearer unto you. To know you is to love you, and may we know you better when we leave than when we came. We ask these things in your holy and precious name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Welcome to Calvary Chapel. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians, continuing our verse-by-verse study through the New Testament. Now, I don't know if it means anything in your Bible, but in my Bible, we are exactly three-quarters of the way through the New Testament. There it is. A little, little farther behind that in the Old Testament, but that's all right. encourage you to come out Wednesday night. We'll be, we'll be uh, continuing our verse-by-verse study through Judges. We'll be in Judges chapter 11. encourage you to read ahead. All right. I love this book like I do every book in the Bible. And 1 Thessalonians, as we're going to see, is, again, unique, as each of them are, because the context of who they were written to who wrote it and who it was written to and, and why it was being written is different than the previous letters that we've read before. Each of these letters written by the Apostle Paul, again, had a specific message for a specific people at a specific time, and that's how we understand the context, but we know the Word of God applies to our lives today. Now, the book of Romans, just to catch you up, emphasizes the righteousness of God, the doctrine of salvation. 1 Corinthians, the wisdom of God overcoming the problems that were within the church. 2 Corinthians spoke about the comfort of God. Galatians, our freedom in Christ, that we've been justified in Him. Ephesians, our riches in Christ. Blessed, chosen, adopted, accepted, redeemed, enlightened, forgiven, assured, sealed. We're going to heaven. Philippians, the joy of the Lord that's available to every single one of us who's been born again. Colossians that we just finished, the preeminence of Christ. He is over all things, before all things, above all things. He alone is God. There's no God before Him, beside Him, or after Him. He's it. Amen? Amen. And then the second half, as we saw, how do we now live in light of the fact that He alone is God and that He alone is preeminent? Well, now we come to 1 Thessalonians, and though all of the Word of God, of course, is inspired and perfect, every bit of it, without error, 100% pure, Amen. the way they are put together in the Word, the order they're in, isn't necessarily chronologically that order. This is probably, 1 Thessalonians, the first letter Paul ever wrote. It's either that or Galatians, depending on who, who you listen to. But this was written in about 51 A.D., and this is at, a, again, a very short amount of time, about 18 years after Jesus ascended back up into heaven. And this letter was written to a church that Paul had not spent a lot of time with. And in this letter, Paul's going to commend the believers in Thessalonica. Now, each of the other times, for the most part, we see that there's a total disaster going on in the church, and that's why the letter's being written. This is one of the few times where the letter's being written, and he actually commends them and says, you guys are doing awesome. So it's good to know that 
Some of the letters are actually an encouragement. Amen. Now they all are ultimately. But this is being written to encourage the, these new believers in Thessalonica because they have been faithful and diligent and patient and overflowing with joy. And Paul had held up this church as an example to other churches as well. In this letter, Paul is going to exhort this young church to stay on target, to remain steadfast in their faith, and not to lose their focused, focus in, the, in spite of the fact that they're being persecuted. So this is a church that, real quickly, Paul had gone there. You can see the story in Acts 17. In Acts 17, Paul's on his second missionary journey. He has a vision, laying in bed at night, he has a vision of a man in Macedonia calling him to come. And Paul, the next morning, gets up to go to Macedonia. His first stop was in Philippi. And we know what happened there, that he preached the gospel, that he started with the women who were by the the river there. Many of them got saved, including a woman by the name of Lydia. Her whole household was saved. And then the people there got jealous, the Jews. And so what happened? They came and attacked him, and they threw him into jail. jail. He was beaten. He and Silas were beaten, and they were jailed. And then we know what happened. God brought a supernatural earthquake and shook the gates open. And the jailer was about to kill himself because he thought they'd escaped. And he said, don't kill yourself. We haven't left. He leaves the jailer to the Lord. His whole family gets saved. God's doing a great work. And they get chased out of town. When they leave town, they go 100 miles further into Macedonia to the capital of Macedonia at the time, a city called Thessalonica. Now, Thessalonica is a city that still exists today. It's It's the second largest city in Greece next to Athens. So it's still there. You can go visit it. Paul's not going to be there, but you can go visit it. All right? Now, this letter to the Thessalonians, like each of the other ones, had a main theme or focus. This one does as well. It is an encouragement to them. But one of the things that he talks about in First and Second Thessalonians is something that is a struggle that people have today. I don't have any struggle with it at all. And that's whether or not, when's Jesus Christ coming back? It's for, now, we don't know the day or the hour, but I know this much. He's snatching us away before the heavy-duty stuff starts happening. And you know what? That's what this, this first Thessalonians is all about. Again, one of the main focal points is the rapture of the church. He's telling them, guys, stay on target. You know why? Because Jesus is coming back. You need to stay focused on the eternal stuff because Jesus is coming back. All five chapters of 1 Thessalonians, his last verse or two, he reminds them Jesus is coming back. And I'm going to take just a minute and read those verses to you really quick. In chapter 1, last verse says, And wait for his Son from heaven who has raised him from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, he delivers us. We'll talk about that because we're going to finish the chapter this morning. He delivers us from the wrath to come. Does that sound like we're going to be here during the tribulation when 120-pound hailstones are falling from the sky that are on fire? Uh, I don't think we're going to be here for that. Amen? Amen. And aren't you glad? (laughs) Chapter 2, he ends it with verse 20. In verse 19, it says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? He's coming back. Chapter 3, when you get to the end of chapter 3, he says there, verse 11, Now may 
our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you, so that he may establish your hearts, blameless and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Chapter 4. If you haven't underlined these verses, you ought to. Verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up, in, caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall be with, always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. If this was happening after, we wouldn't be comforting ourselves with looking forward to the great tribulation. Amen? But praise God, he's delivering us from the wrath that is to come. And then in chapter 5, he says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We see a theme in this book. He's repeatedly reminding them, guys, you're going through persecution, but the Lord's coming back. And you know what? You're going to be in his presence soon. You know what? Every generation ought to be living like we're the last ones. And here's the truth. We're closer to the Lord's return than anybody's ever been. We know that for sure. Amen? So whatever, whether that's next week, next month, or 50 years from now, God is coming back. The Lord is coming back. He's going to snatch His church away. It's going to be in the twinkling of an eye. And we ought to live every day in anticipation of that great day. Amen? Amen? Because He is coming back. Now, when He comes back, and when he snatches his church away and then we, he, we come back with him, and we'll talk about that, it's not going to matter what people thought. It's not going to matter what people voted on. It's not going to matter what people think is right. And we're going to talk a little bit about that this morning. So in 1 Thessalonians, they were living a genuine Christianity, and the Lord is instructing them to continue to persevere in the face of persecution and live in hope of his soon return. Raw written nearly 2,000 years ago, it has a very clear application for us today. Now, Thessalonica, just real quickly, was a major commerce city in those days, city of about 200,000 people. It was a city that was named after Alex, one of Alexander the Great's sisters after he had conquered the city. Uh, it was, again, that the headquarters or the main city in Macedonia. Paul had been called to Macedonia. He had gone there. Now, what's interesting, in, in Acts 17, Paul only spent three weeks in Thessalonica. He was there three weeks. He went straight into the synagogue. Even though he was called to minister to the Gentiles, he would always go first to the Jews because they had the Old Testament in common. He would take them to the Old Testament, and he would show them Jesus in the Old Testament which I still love to do to this day, amen? amen. He's in every chapter, and it's, it's great to see Jesus all over the Old Testament. So he would take them to the Old Testament, and he went there, and many people were saved, but many of the Jews, a great number of the Greeks, and, and it says many of the, the prominent women were saved, but there was a group of the Jews that weren't very happy about it, those who didn't believe, who were still waiting for the Messiah, who had missed Jesus Christ, who then stirred up the people, and a mob chased Paul and Silas out of town. Now they left Thessalonica, they went down from there to Berea, and there they again went into the synagogue, people started getting saved, and the people in Thessalonica, these, this mob was so mad that people were getting saved in the next town, that the mob from Thessalonica went down to Berea and chased them out of there also. Now, they left there and went to Corinth. 
While in Corinth, he had sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to encourage the church. He'd been there three weeks. People had gotten saved. God was doing a great work. He sent Timothy back to let him know, I didn't just bail on you guys. You know, I, I, I'm praying for you. I care for you. Timothy spent some time with them. He comes back to Corinth where he shares with Paul what's going on. And that's where Paul writes this letter, sitting in Corinth, back to the believers in Thessalonica to exhort them and encourage them to stay on target in spite of the fact that persecution was all around them. So that gives us the context for this book of First and Second Thessalonians that we'll be taking a look at over the next couple of months. Now, there was confusion in Thessalonica at the time. And some of the confusion, as we'll talk about, was the persecution was so great, they started to wonder if they were in the tribulation. Because the persecution was so heavy, they thought, well, did the day of the Lord come, and, and this is what's going on, and we're facing it right now, and now you understand a little bit better why he's telling them he hasn't come yet. Hey guys, when the Lord snatches his church away, we're all gonna know it. Amen? Amen? Now, the world is going to be a disaster after that happens. By the way, if you're still here, it's not too late to get saved. We'll be in heaven, and, but we'll, you know, we can't pray for you. It's too late. So, at that point, get right, amen? Our website will still be up. We've got it on rapture-proof website, so you can, you can go on there and listen to the messages. So, the persecution was so great, they thought maybe the rapture had come. And then there was confusion because people were dying and they thought, well, wait a minute, we're going to be caught up in the air. What about the people who died? And he's going to address that question as well because, again, there was confusion in this new church. So I titled the message today, if you take notes, True Salvation Changes Everything. True Salvation Changes Everything. Not just your eternal destination, but everything about you. And we're going to have eight points in a moment, but I want to give a little background on this. Because, you know, in a time when the Word of God is under direct attack, even the need for salvation and the true source of redemption are being brought into question, not by the world, but by mainline Christian denominations. Moral relativism has crept into the church. Where now it's, well, what do you think? What do you vote? What do you believe? Irrelevant. Doesn't matter what anybody thinks, anybody feels, or anybody believes, it's what does the Bible say? The Word of God is the authority, nothing else. And it just grips my heart to see in the last couple of weeks, mainline denominations coming out saying, We don't believe, we cannot affirm that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. And you call yourself Christians, what's the point? Why would you be a Christian if Christ is not the only way? I don't get it. And things are coming out, new, new bishops being elected to high positions who are coming out saying, well, you know, the word, the Bible is just, that was questions for those people in those days. And, you know, things are different now. Our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? And it's so important that we grab a hold of the word of God. Christianity no longer holds often the true biblical definition that it should but now can be identified as somebody who experiences a Christ consciousness. It's in the Santa Cruz Sentinel. Come to our meeting and meditate and experience a Christ consciousness. You know what? You go and meditate and you don't come to know Jesus Christ, you're going to be conscious of Christ all right. But it's going to be too late. Amen? 
The point is that Jesus Christ is the answer. He's the only hope. He's the only way. He's the only truth. There's a belief that we can believe in a God of our own understanding. As long as we believe and we're sincere. You can be sincere and sincerely wrong. There are many paths to God out there, supposedly, but there's only one way to get to heaven. And the sad part is today, and get ready for it because it's only going to get worse, that if you make a stand and say Jesus is the only way, you're viewed as narrow-minded and bigoted. You know, they're, gonna, they're trying to pass laws to make it against the law. They're going to call teaching the book of Romans hate speech. And you know what? If they do that, you guys will have to send me a cake with a file in it or something because I'm going to prison. The point is, the, the Word of God has got to be the authority. Instead of trying to alter the gospel to make it more appealing to this postmodern generation, instead of attempting to conform God and His Word to fit into my desired lifestyle and way of thinking, Instead of attempting to transform the gospel, we need to let the gospel transform us. And that's the whole focal point of this this first chapter. He's talking about what it means to be a genuine Christian. What does genuine Christianity look like? How How ought Christians to live today? Should we be going with the flow and fitting into the world? We can learn a great deal about what the life of one of those who had truly been born again, transformed from death into life, really looks like by looking at this church in Thessalonica. In this first chapter, again, we're going to see that genuine Christianity. More than just a belief in God or even seeing your own need for a Savior, but a complete, total brokenness and true repentance and a complete surrender of our lives to Him. Not just Savior, but Lord of every aspect of your life. Again, I had a lady leave our church not too long ago who I ran into later who told me she left because I act like Jesus is all that matters. And I said, yes, that's true. He's all that matters, you guys. He's it. He's preeminent. He's what it's all about. And everything else in life should be done in light of Him. Everything. My priorities, my passions, my character, my desires, everything ought to be done in light of Jesus Christ and our relationship to Him. And that's what this first chapter is all about. So we're going to go through, and I'll give you the points as we go through. So true salvation changes everything. First of all, it changes who I am as a person. Let's take a look at verse 1 of 1 Thessalonians. It says, Paul... Silvanus and Timothy. Now, Paul Silvanus, Silvanus is just another uh, transliteration of the, of the name Silas. So Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they're the ones writing this, uh, that, that are greeting them. Paul's the one dictating the letter, but he's with Silas, and he's with Timothy. They're in Corinth, and they're sending this letter to the, to the church in Thessalonica. Now, one of the things we learn quickly from this is that Paul was a bold, brave, and amazing man of God, one of the most faithful and fruitful men who, got, who has ever lived. 18 years he had been a believer at this point. He spent eight and a half years on the mission field. He was a man that God had used to write much of the New Testament. He endured persecution, yet planted churches throughout the world. He wasn't slowed by prison or personal threats, and yet noticed that he rarely traveled alone. 
Because Christianity is not for the Lone Ranger. God has designed us to be in fellowship with other believers. And when we're not, bad company corrupts good morals. And if you go off and you get off on your own and do things your own way and start seeking in your own path, you know what? You're going to miss out on so much that God wants to do with you and in you. God desires that every one of you be part of a local church. It doesn't have to be this one, but a local church where you're using your gifts and you're you're allowing others to use their gifts to minister to you. And the Apostle Paul needed fellowship. How much more do you and I? Amen? And so we see that this first of his letters, he's dictating it, and he mentions Silas and Timothy. Now, Silas, we know, had been traveling with him. Timothy was his son in the faith, if you will. We'll talk a little bit more about him as we continue on. And they had been with him in Thessalonica and were known by the body there. And it says this, To the church of Thessalonians. Church. The word church there means called out people. And that's what God has called us to be. Called out people. Those who the Lord saves, he calls out of the world and unto himself. We're in the world, but we're no longer of it, you guys. We are aliens here. We are aliens. This is not our home. And one of the reasons that we get so caught up and so bummed out and so distressed is we act like it's our home. Acts 15, Simon had declared how God at first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. To take them out of the world and bring them unto himself. The Thessalonians were a called out people. This church is only a few months old and they're doing really well. As my dad would say, they got saved real good. You know, some people get saved or they say they get saved. They walk an aisle, they pray a prayer, nothing changes. You know what? If you've truly been born again, everything's going to change. And if it hasn't, time to get right with the Lord. Amen? Because in light of Him, everything else is nothing. Paul, there less than a month, he's writing back to this church and he's calling them, you know, called out ones. Referred to them as a model for all churches to pattern themselves after. How is it possible that such a, a young group of believers could be used so mightily by God? The key point is not what they've accomplished, but who they're linked to. Look what it says. To the church of Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Guys, here's the answer. How can they accomplish so much? They're in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The word in there speaks of position. It implies a vital union. They're not with Him or near Him or by Him. They're in Him. Guys, when we're born again, we're in Christ. No longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. I'm in Him and He dwells in me in the person of the Holy Spirit. Everything should be different. We're not near or by God, but we're in Him. And I love how God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ are, all, are so frequently linked together in the Word of God. You never see God the Father and the Apostle Paul. You don't see God the Father and Peter. You don't see God the Father and Mary. Amen? Amen. You see God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And if He were not God... It would be blasphemous how often their names are linked completely together. The structure of this sentence implies that they are one of the same type. And that's exactly who Jesus is. He is God made manifest in the flesh. 
if Jesus were not God, the repeated close link would be blasphemous. So these Thessalonian believers, like you and I today, were in the Father and in the Son. The work of the Father, He elected you. He chose you. The work of the Son, He redeemed you. You were chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. You're members of His body. You're branches grafted into the vine. The Thessalonians no longer lost idolaters, but new creations in Christ. And you and I no longer dead in our trespasses and sins, but new creations in Him. When you get saved, everything changes. And the first thing that changes is who you are. You're not dead in your sin anymore. You're a new creation in Christ. True salvation changes everything. No longer separated from God, but an intimate fellowship with Him. No longer headed for an eternity separated from God, but headed for an eternity in the presence of our Heavenly Father. True salvation changes everything. First of all, who I am as a person. Then it says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There you see them linked together again. Grace and peace, it's been said, are the Siamese twins of the New Testament. You see one, the other one's always next to it for the most part. Especially in greetings, and they're always in this order. Why? Because without grace, there can be no peace. Amen? Amen. How do you and I have peace today? By experiencing the grace of God. True peace is a result of an understanding that our salvation rests on what God has done rather than what we must do. Guys, if you're trying to earn your salvation, you'll never have peace. If you're trying to be good enough, you never will be. And that's why I'm so, just praise God that by His grace we're saved. It's grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. It's grace that brings the peace of God and gives us peace with God. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. True salvation changes everything. Secondly, it allows me to experience real peace. When I've truly been saved, I know what peace is. You can have that peace that surpasses all understanding, not just the peace that comes from understanding. The world enjoys temporary happiness. They cannot know real peace. How do we have peace again? By having intimate fellowship with the Lord. Look at verse 2. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. Paul had the heart of a pastor, and he was praying for them all. Prayed for them all. Jew, Gentile, Greek, Roman, rich, poor, it didn't matter. He was praying for them all. Paul was a man of prayer, and he was used mightily by God. And I I would love for someone to show me anybody in the Bible who was used mightily by God that was not a man or woman of prayer. You want to be used mildly by God? Pray more. Prayer doesn't change God's mind, it changes our heart. Amen? Prayer doesn't get God in tune with our will, it gets us in tune with His. So we need to pray more to know His heart so we can walk in the center of His will. And he says, we give thanks to God always. He thanks God for them. It's in the present tense of the verb, He's giving thanks continually every single day for the believers in Thessalonica. Paul thanking God for their faithfulness and interceding on on behalf of them daily. So true salvation changes everything. It opens up intimate fellowship with the Father. Guys, we can talk to the creator of the universe anywhere and anytime. 
We should never take that for granted. Guys, we're not yelling down a well when we pray. We're not praying to some faraway distant God that just doesn't care. He's Abba Father, which means Daddy. He's never far away, and He loves to hear from you. Amen? And you know what? True salvation changes everything because before you were saved, God did not hear your prayers. Why? Because there's one mediator between man and God. Who is it? Jesus Christ. If you don't know Christ, your prayer's not getting there. You can pray to all the saints you want. You can crawl on your knees and glass to Mecca. You can do all the rituals and the rules and the rites you want to. And God hears none of it unless you come through the Son. Because only the Son can bring you into the presence of the Father. Amen? And so we see here that true salvation changes everything because it allows us the privilege of prayer. We can come into His presence anywhere, anytime. When Jesus died on the cross, that veil was torn from top to bottom because God reached down from heaven and tore it that you and I might enter in to the presence of our Heavenly Father. You know what? May we not take that for granted. Through salvation, we have intimate fellowship and positionally, we are in Him. Now look at verse 3. Look at some marks of spiritual maturity. These are things that we should see in the life of a mature church and in the life of a mature believer. Look what it says. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith. True faith produces an action. You know, it's one thing to say that you love somebody, and it's another thing to live like it. It's one thing to say that you're willing to do something, and it's another thing to actually do it. If you really believe, it should change your behavior. And true faith produces an action. What we believe will impact how we live. Again, you've heard me say it many times, I'll say it again. Not faith plus works or faith or works, it's faith that works, amen? We have faith in the Lord, it's not the works that save us, but the works are fruit of true faith in God. If you really believe that He's coming back, we ought to live different. If you really believe that we're going to spend eternity in heaven and the only thing we're taking with us is people, we ought to live different. If we really believe it, it ought to impact how we live every single day. The Bible says that faith without works is dead. Guys, too many many today calling themselves Christians, but you would never know it by looking at their actions. You hear it all the time. People bash bash the church because they say they know a Christian who's a hypocrite. And you know what? We've all been hypocrites at some point, haven't we? Aren't you glad we're saved by grace? But you know what? That doesn't give us permission to continue in sin that grace may abound. Certainly not. God's desire is that we would live a life holy and set apart unto Him and that we would be a witness for Him whether we open our mouths or not. So we see here that this faith is producing an action. A lot of times people think faith means to do nothing. I have people say that, well, I'm just living by faith. Okay, what does that mean? Well, I'm just sitting at home waiting for the phone to ring with the job. I'm living by faith. No, you're living in laziness is what you're living. (laughs) Faith produces an action, amen? We need to step out and be obedient to what the Word of God has called us to do. If God speaks to you and tells you to move and you really believe Him, then move. You know, God told David, 
in 1 Samuel 23 to go and fight a, an overwhelming army. And the people didn't believe him. So he asked God again. God told him to go. He went. And guess what? They won. And we see that over and over and over and over and over again in Scripture. And you know, the eyes of the Lord are searching to and fro among the whole earth, seeking one. He can show himself strong on account of one whose heart is loyal to him. God is looking for faithful men and women today. In a world where compromise and watering down of the gospel is so prevalent. In a world where people who call themselves Christians are so caught up in the world they don't have any time for God. God's looking for those who will say, Lord, I'm going to make you the priority in my life. Above everything else. Be like Job. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. To live as Christ and to die as gain. You know what? He might start leading you to do things that you don't necessarily see as gift. If you have faith, do it. Trust God. A faith that works is a mark of spiritual maturity. True faith produces action. Look what he also says. Not only a work of faith, but a labor of love. Now these words don't seem like they belong together. A labor. The word labor there is a beating. It's what it, in the original language it means a beating, a beating of the breast with grief, sorrow, trouble, to make work for, intense labor united with trouble and toil. A labor of love. We think of love as being, you know, daisies and, you know, dancing through the field or something, right? But here's the truth. If we really love people, we will be willing to go through difficulty to minister to them. A labor of love. Not a conditional love when everything's perfect, but a labor of love. The Bible says, greater love hath no man than this, that he lay down his life for a friend. Who's the ultimate example of that? Jesus Christ. For God so agape the world that he gave his only begotten son. God has called us not to just love in word or love in emotion or to say I love you on a card. But to be willing to labor in love. Loving others the way God wants us to isn't easy. And sometimes we want to beat on our chest because it's so difficult. But the Lord would say to us, love them the way I loved you. You know what? I'm so glad the Lord loves me in spite of me. Amen? I'm glad. You know, He knows everything about me. He knows me best and loves me most, blows me away. He knows everything I've ever thought done, period. And you know what? If we took any one of us at random and put all of our thought life for our lifetime up on the screen, everyone would run from the building screaming. But the Lord's seen it all and loves us anyway. It's a labor of love. Loved you so much, He was willing to die. Faith that works and a labor of love. Loving people enough to live sacrificially, to lay down your life on behalf of others. Jesus said this, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know you, might, know you are my disciples if you have love one for another. You know what? I, my prayer, one of my prayers for us as a body is we would love each other so unconditionally the people would walk in here and just get sick because we love each other so much. You know what I mean? And you know one of the best compliments I get is people will call and say, I, I visited your church on Sunday and I've never been so welcomed and so loved in my life. That's a mature church. Amen? That's a church that's fallen in love with Jesus. 
Because that love is contagious. Not only a work of faith and a labor of love, but patient and patient of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Patient to mean to remain under, steadfast, constant, to endure. Patient in hope, an expectation of good. Patient in a coming expectation of good. Not impatient, but patient, waiting upon the Lord. The Thessalonians' hope produced patience, which is a long-suffering endurance needed not only to survive hard times, but to triumph through them. Hope produces unceasing patience. And again, it's a strong word for endurance. Your hope looks to the future. And we see a strong emphasis on this throughout this book. He's saying Jesus is coming back. We need to have a patience of hope. Amen? He's coming back. You know what? No matter what, I don't care how difficult what the trials are in your life right now, doesn't matter what they are, there's something great in front of you. Amen? And God also wants us to have patience in the midst of the difficulty that God might be glorified in it. Amen? Too often we're praying to be delivered from it when God wants to work through it. Working hard for the Lord, even to the point of exhaustion, is what this word can also mean. While enduring opposition, before you try to run away, trust in the Lord and ask God to bring you through it. And understand this, before the work and the labor and the patience are performed outwardly, the faith and the hope and the love must be produced inwardly. Before you can have patience outwardly, there's got to be hope inwardly. How do you have patience? You've got an eternal perspective, amen? Gives you all kinds of patience. Diagnosed with cancer. Okay. I'm not saying you're going to be thrilled, but you know what? You're going to heaven. Amen? I've done a lot of funerals. I'm envious. Seriously. I go to funerals, I'm like, dude, you're stoked. We're not, because we miss you. But you're stoked, amen? You're in heaven. You're in the presence of Almighty God. Oh, he died too young. Poor guy. Went straight to be in the presence of Almighty God. How unfortunate. It's not unfortunate. Amen? There's a patience of hope. There's a, an enduring of hope. When we have, but the hope's got to be there first. The faith's got to be there first. The love's got to be there first. Spiritual maturity is from the inside out. Amen? It starts in our heart and impacts our behavior. True salvation changes everything. The person that I am, it allows me to experience real peace. It gives me the privilege of prayer and gives purpose to my life. To to live a life of faith that works and love that labors and hope that's patient. Verse 4. Knowing, let me finish verse 3. Labor of love and patience of the hope of our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. Does it ever blow you away that God's always watching? Always. He never takes a nap. And He never takes His eyes off of you. You thought you were the only one that only ha- always had you on your mind. And in this room, you probably are. But God has always got you on His mind and on His heart. Amen? You are His treasured possession. Now look what it says. Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. Here's a word that people hear that, ooh, ooh right? Election. Elect. Oh no, what does that mean? I don't understand. I can't grasp it. 
And people just run away from it. Let's just read past that verse. Let me explain it to you. Hopefully you'll grasp it. All right? I have no problem with the sovereignty of God and the free will of man coexisting at the same time. You know why? Because the Bible teaches them both. And the Bible's never wrong. Amen? Did God foreordain and choose you before the foundation of the world to be saved? What's the answer? Yes, He did. He's God. You know, God can't learn anything. If the answer is, did God know? The answer is always yes. Amen? God knows everything. You can't teach Him anything. He's God. So God knows everything. He knows, and people say, well, did God know that the, you know, that the tsunami was going to hit? Did God know that there was going to be this tornado? Of course God knew. He's God. He knows everything. People go, oh, it's just a, it was just random through nature. There's no random anything. God's in control of everything. Amen? Isn't there peace in that? I'm talking to this guy. He's a Christian brother. He's like, no, dude, man, God didn't know. I go, how could God not know? Help me out with that. So you're telling me God didn't really know, so people could have been killed that God didn't know were going to be killed. Which means that the children they were going to have, they're not going to have now because they got killed because they didn't... That's not working. God has to be in control of every... He's either in control of all or he's not at all. At all. Amen? He's in control. So he is, we are the elect of God. Does it blow you away that God chose you? God chose me. Now, some of you may have experienced, you know, getting chose last at recess or something and feeling bad about yourself. <laughs> but you know what? The only choose that matters is this one. And He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Many struggle, again, with the sovereignty of God. God in His sovereignty has always known who would and who would not be saved, but that does not mean that He controls who is and who is not saved. We are not robots. We've had free will since the garden. Is that true or not? If we didn't have free will, we have free will since the garden. Free will, free will we still have. God knows who is going to choose, who is going to respond to Him reaching out to them in love. And those are the ones who are chosen. How about that? That's how it works. And here's what it is. We get a headache because we're finite man trying to understand infinite God. Well, how can that both be true? How can we have free will? Then, if we have free will, then God can't be in control. Well, yeah, He can Well, how is that possible? Because he's God, you're not. Get over it, amen? He's God. He can do anything he wants. And God is sovereign. He's always known. But God's sovereignty does not relieve man of his responsibility. John 3.16 says, God so loved who? The The world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. People try to make that whosoever the elect. Nice try. Read your Bible. It says, whosoever. That means, whosoever. The Bible says that he desires that none should perish, no, not one. So if we're all forced to do his will according to the way he wants us to, then we'd all be saved because he desires that none of us would perish. But the truth is that because we have free will, most will choose not to accept him. We have free will, you guys. But aren't you glad that God chose you? In Joshua, it says, choose this day whom you will serve. In the New Testament, men turn away and chose to follow him no more. And at the same time, God chose us. In Christ, in the cross, he chose us, not in our good works. So it is, again, free will and sovereignty. Both are true because both are taught in the word of God. And we shouldn't have a problem with it because God said so. And that's enough. Amen? Amen. Verse 5. 
For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. This is such a key verse. It's not just an intellectual understanding. Guys, we need to go beyond just knowing about God, but now being empowered by God who has now come to live inside of us in the person of the Holy Spirit. Again, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, but when true faith comes, then the Holy Spirit's going to come and live inside of us. And guys, it can't be anything less than that. Too often today, people struggle because they don't grasp the power of God that comes through the person of the Holy Spirit. The word power there, give you one guess. What's the word? Dunamis, dynamite, dynamic. The power of God, Acts chapter 2. And the, the Holy Spirit came upon them. And they had power, right? You shall receive power from on high when the Holy Spirit's come upon you, Acts 1.8. And you shall be witnesses to me. And God desires that we have more than an intellectual understanding of God, but that we have a life-changing uh, power of God coming upon us and leading our every single step. How come the apostles were such knuckleheads before Acts chapter 2? Is that true or not? Napping when they're supposed to be praying, Right? Weren't they? Fighting over which one was the greatest. That's what they did. Mount of Transfiguration, telling the Lord what he needs to do, Peter. And then running away from a little girl who said, you're one of them. No, I'm not. Curse, ran away. Peter! Upon this rock, I will build my church. That's me, I'm the rock, running away. I've never seen a rock run, okay? So here's the point. The rock is Jesus, amen? Amen. But what happens here is that Peter, before Pentecost, had an intellectual understanding of who God was, but had not had his life taken over by him. And then he breathed the Spirit in him, and then in Acts, the Holy Spirit came upon him, and now he's standing up in front of the very people he was once afraid of, preaching with great boldness, and 3,000 people got saved in a single day. Guys, we need to go beyond having an intellectual understanding of Jesus Christ and being led by, filled with, and dwelt, I don't, filled, baptized, and dwelt, call it what you want it, just get it. Amen? Amen. Holy Spirit upon you, leading, ruling, and reigning in every aspect of your life. True salvation changes everything. You were once spiritually dead, but now you're spiritually alive, empowered by the Spirit of the living God. True salvation comes not just through words, but through the Holy Spirit who brings conviction. Who illuminates the truth so we understand it? The Holy Spirit. Amen? How do we understand the Word of God? The Holy Spirit gives us understanding. Second part of verse 5. But also in power in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance, as you know, what kind of men we were among you for your sake. Paul exemplified the gospel not just in words, but in actions. You know what? I have such a burden that there would be more of this in the church. That we wouldn't just talk about God, but we would be living so on fire for Him that people would want to knock us over and want to know what's different about us. Just seeing us at work and the way we treat people, the way we love people. You know, just how kind we are in line at the grocery store. Amen? Let people go once in a while. It's okay. You don't got to be first. Just start loving folks. You see someone broken down, pull over. I mean, just start loving people in a practical way and watch how God will use that to bring people unto Him. We want to get in intellectual debates and we need to know what we believe and why we believe it. We need to start living lives 
just filled with the love of God. Amen? Kindness leads people to repentance. And he said, you know what kind of lives we lived among you? It says, and you become followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. You know what? They received the word with much affliction. When they heard the truth of the gospel, guess what they got to see happen to the ones who delivered the gospel right when it happened? They got chased out of town by a mob. Now, a lot of people go, I don't think I want to go with that program. Now, he, I, I kind of liked what he said, but I didn't like what happened right after he got done teaching. And, you know, if I believed that, I might be the next one chased out of town, so not so much. And you know what? He says right there that they, they received the word in much affliction. They knew that the affliction was coming. They believed it anyway. They lived it anyway. Guys, we have no idea what persecution is. Don't even start to tell me. You know, what you, you, nobody in this room has been persecuted. Just stop it already. Come with me to India sometime and we can talk about it. And these guys have the joy of the Lord. I'll never forget these two young guys coming into the church where Bill, Pastor Bill and I were. And, and these two young guys come in, probably 17 and 18 years old, smiling ear to ear, speaking through the interpreter. I got no idea what they're talking about, but I know they're happy. And you know what I found out? They're rejoicing in the fact they've gone out and they're showing a movie out in the field to all these people in India. And these people attacked them and beat them up. And, he's, and they're telling us this story about how they beat him up for like an hour. Kicked him, beat him up, took their stuff, broke it in pieces. And they go, yeah, and after they left, finally we got up. And there was not a mark on us, not a bruise on us. Because God's hand was on us. And you know what? We got some more equipment and went right back down there the next day. <laughs> and I'm like, you guys rock. I'm like, I'm like, am I saved? You know what I mean? I'm bummed out because somebody took my Christian fish off the back of my car. <laughs> and persecuted for my faith. These guys in much affliction. And we need to start living lives, guys, that are not wavering to what the world says anymore. Amen? You know what? Live for the Lord. Do it in love. Never self-righteous. They received the gospel with the joy of the Holy Spirit, a supernatural joy. Man, I, you know what? You're going to think I'm out of my mind. Sometimes I pray for persecution in, in America. I'm like, Lord, just bring it on. Because you know what? We're going to find out who really stands with you. Amen. Let's just start standing with them. Amen? There's a threat of going to jail next Sunday. How many of us would show up? Hopefully we'd all be here and bring some friends. Amen? Amen. Let's finish up. So that you became examples to all of Macedonia and Achaia who believe. You know what? They not only followed a godly example, they became godly examples. When you get truly saved, everything changes. And you start not only following godly examples, you become a godly example in the way that you live your life. Amen? You become somebody that hopefully can say, follow me as I follow Christ. Say that to your kids, to your coworkers, to the people around you. That we can be examples. Be an example in everything you say and in everything you do. Remember, you represent Jesus Christ all the time, whether you know it or not. And Paul said they were proclaiming the word of God so powerfully. Look at verse 8. Look what it says. For for from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. Paul said you guys are so on fire for God, everybody knows about it. And I got nobody else to tell. Can you imagine? 
These guys have been saved months. Saved real good. Amen? Laboring in love. A faith that works. Patient in hope. Enduring affliction on fire for God. Lord, I pray for my own life and for yours as well that we'd have that same passion for Him. True salvation changes everything as a pattern for our life and a life for others. Last two verses. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Notice, they first turned to God. They didn't try to turn from the idol. They turned to God. They didn't try to do good works to get right with God. They didn't say, as soon as I quit drinking, then I'll come to God. As soon as I quit smoking, as soon as I quit struggling with pornography, as soon as I quit struggling with my temper, as soon as I get rid of this bad habit over here, then I'll get right with God. Guys, quit trying to take a shower before you get in the bath. Amen? You know what we need to do? Just turn to God right now where you are. No matter what's going on in your life, He said you turn from the idols to God. Turn to God from the idols. The first thing we do is get our eyes on Him. Turn first to the Lord. They didn't try to reform themselves. They allowed God to transform them from within. Didn't try to reform themselves from the outside, but let God transform them from the inside. Everybody asked what had happened to these Thessalonians because they had broken their idols and they had taken everything that was impure and and ungodly and dishonest and destroyed it. You know, Lord, I pray that we'd have conversions like that today. That we wouldn't just walk in out and pray a prayer because we want to make sure that just in case there is a God, we don't go to hell. But instead we'd say, Lord, my life is completely yours, all of it. Lord, show me what you want to get out of my house. Lord, show me what you want to get out of my life. Lord, show me what you want to get out of my behavior. Lord, so that I can represent you better. Amen? And so that you can be glorified and honored. Last verse. And it says there, And to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come, and that's good news. Amen? Amen. God has not appointed us to wrath. He's he's delivering us from it. I'm glad He's snatching us away. He's not going to bring righteous judgment upon His own kids. He's going to deliver us first. The imminent rapture of the church was an important foundational doctrine that Paul taught these believers, again, that they would have that hope, and that wrath to come, the tribulation, that they would be delivered from it. So they would not think they were in the tribulation, but they would know that God is still faithful to His promises. So, in closing, true salvation changes everything. Number one, it changes the person that you are. You used to be spiritually dead, now you're alive in Christ. It allows you to experience real peace. You want to have real peace? You've got to know the Prince of Peace. Amen? Thirdly, it opens intimate fellowship with the Father through prayer. When you're truly saved, you now can come to the Father through the Son. You can know Almighty God in an intimate way. Number four, it changes how you purpose your life every day. Faith that works, love that labors, hope that's patient. Fifthly, you're empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Amen? And now I'm walking the fullness of the Spirit. I'm not trying to do it on my own, but it's God who lives in me and works through me. My life becomes a pattern for others to follow. We start living a life in such a way that others see us and and they can see Jesus in us. We also see 
that our, our salvation becomes our source of pleasure. It's no longer the idols that we have in our house that bring us pleasure. It's intimacy with Him that brings us pleasure. Amen? And it's far greater. And then lastly, it changes our perspective on eternity. My prayer for each one of us, if you've been saved, may your life be changed in every way. Amen? May it not be enough just to have the get-out-of-hell-free card. Not just the, the transformation on where you're going to spend eternity, but how you're living presently. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your love and your grace. And we do thank you that when you save us, when you call us unto yourself, when we respond, Lord, that then you empower us to walk in the fullness of your Holy Spirit. Lord, that we can walk in the center of your will, having an impact on a lost and a dying world. Lord, I pray that we would have the fruit of the Holy Spirit evident in our lives, that love and joy and peace and kindness. Father, I thank you that you're a faithful God who's in control. Lord, that you chose us before the foundation of the world. But Lord, you've got a plan for every life in this room. You've got a calling on every person in this room. Lord, help us, Lord, to respond in obedience to the calling you've placed upon our lives. May we not be so busy with the temporal that we have no impact for the eternal. Lord, we love you and we praise you. Lord, you're such a great and an awesome God. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand and close the worship song.